0: Hi. Are you hearing me? Good. Well, it's nice to be with you. Um, nice to open the word with you. I do have a lot of memories at the Master's College. I was here when uh, we built about three or four dormitories, witnessed the first spring sing, the first of this, the first of that, made some of my best friends, met my wife here, which I'm very thankful about. Took a lot of classes, learned a lot of things. Um, I was thinking this morning, I was thinking about uh, just my time here at the college, and it's a bittersweet thing for me, Joel, to be here as well, because I'm looking at closing out my time here and going back to where I think the Lord has called me, and that's back in Toronto. Home of the world champion Blue Jays, I'm sure you're all familiar that they won the World Series again. You can applaud, that's fine. A spattering. A spattering. Uh, and I thought about a time, uh, for, if you're a freshman, you may not, re- you may not know this guy, it was a guy named Dewey Bertolini who taught here for a number of years, and I took a sermon prep class with Dewey, and, uh, and as a sophomore, I was pretty full of myself, and um, took this sermon prep class, and this one class, he brought in a bunch of guys from the ranch over there, at the, from the Bible Tabernacle, so there was about 30 guys there, and they're pretty active when you preach, you know, they kind of, you give them a little bit and you'll get an amen, and and then I got kind of excited about that, so I got preaching, and I, and I started working a little bit more, and I'm getting a few more amens, and then, ooh, I thought I fell off the edge. And then, uh, and then, and then, you know, it's kind of going, it's going back and forth. It kind of gets this swaying motion, and, and they're kind of going, amen, praise the Lord, you're preaching, you're preaching, and I'm going, and I'm going, and I get done, and I sit down, and I think, man, I am John MacArthur. I really am. And I sit down and I'm thinking, man, that was great. Dewey's just going to say, everybody, be like him. Just be like him. And so Dewey walks up to the front of the uh, the front of the classroom. We were over in Grace Baptist Chapel, and there's about thirty of these guys from the ranch. There's about ten guys in my class. I'm sitting down in the front row, and I've got my good, humble, just finished preaching face on. And uh, and for twenty minutes, not an exaggeration, for twenty minutes. He lamb-blasts me and says, I'm this half-in, half-out, conceited, full-of-myself kid who thinks he's preaching the Word and he's preaching himself with my own agenda. I'm trying to be other people. I'm not letting the Lord use who I am. And he just keeps going. And you know Dewey. I mean, Dewey's excited when he's when he's asleep. I mean, the guy is just... And, and now he's excited about his excitement. And he's just... He's bouncing as he's talking to me and he's pointing in my face and he's inches from me and I'm, I'm, I'm just shrinking into the chair becoming one with the plastic of the chair. And he finishes, and what's even worse, he says, that's it for class today. There's another guy scheduled to preach, and he goes, that's enough. And he, and he walks out of the room. Well, what do you do? You know? So I had a couple friends there who sort of picked me up. And that walk from Grace Baptist up Quigley Canyon... Up to my dorm in Hotchkiss, it seemed like it lasted for hours. Hours. And every step was pain. And, and, I, and, I was, and I was reeling under this stuff and thinking, you know, I thought it was so good. I thought it was so good. But God just humbled me. He broke me. And it's not like you have one experience and suddenly you're this humble person. I think our lives are kind of a, a, a series of experiences like that, hopefully. The uh, chapel planning committee when they asked me to preach asked me to speak on the topic of humility and there's I sort of have this list of top ten things I never want to preach on and number one on that list is humility because how do you preach on being humble how do you preach on on having a servant's heart how do you preach on being a, a person who's the most like Christ essentially a person who most exemplifies Christ So when I speak this morning, I'm I'm preaching to myself. I'm preaching to a young man who very easily uh, could be found to be very proud, um, who even this weekend, even when preparing this message, proved once again that at the core of my heart resides selfishness, resides uh, pride, and resides uh, an attitude that says, I don't want to be a servant. I don't want to be a servant. Open your Bibles with me to the book of Luke. Luke chapter 17. We're going to jump right into the narrative that that Luke has offered us in the life of Christ here. I'd like to read the first ten verses. Follow, if you will. Ten verses may seem like a lot, but I think you can follow with me. Jesus said to his disciples, it is inevitable that stumbling blocks should come. But woe to him through whom they come. It would be better for him if a millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea than that he should cause one of these little ones to stumble. Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in a day and returns to you seven times in that day, saying, I repent, you forgive him. And the apostles, the disciples, they said to the Lord, Lord, increase our faith. To which he responded, if you had faith like a mustard seed, you would be able to say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. It would do what you said. But which of you, having a slave plowing or tending sheep, will say to him when he has come in from the field, come immediately, sit down and eat? will he not say to that slave prepare something for me to eat and properly clothe yourselves and serve me until I have eaten and drunk and afterward then you will eat and drink he does not thank the slave because he did these things which were commanded does he? and then the kick so you too when you do all the things which are commanded you say we are unworthy slaves we have done only that which we ought to have done this is a time when the Lord is preparing his disciples. He knows that his departure, his death, and his resurrection is imminent. And in this little narrative here, he tells us, first of all, he says, it's inevitable that the stumbling blocks, the scandal on, are going to come. Those things that cause you to stumble primarily into sin. It's an interesting word. It means to, it's the bait stick on a trap. We had mice in our apartment, and we'd sit set those, sit those little traps. You know, you put a little peanut butter on the thing, and the mouse comes, and as soon as he touches it, snap! The trap sets and the mouse is killed. And the scandalon is that is that bait stick, that thing that lures you in and then causes you to stumble. And our Lord says it's better to be tossed into the ocean with a millstone around your neck and drown than it is to be the one who causes others to stumble. And then he says this. He says, If your brother sins against you, if your brother, we can assume, is the one who's the scandalon, the one who causes you to stumble. And he comes to you and, and he asks your forgiveness. If he repents, you forgive him. And we think, man, you mean the guy that caused me to fall into sin? The guy that, that led me into sin, I'm supposed to turn around and forgive that one? The one who is the stumbling block to me? Or maybe to my family or or maybe to my friend? I'm supposed to forgive that one when he repents? And the Lord says, yeah, you forgive him. And even if he comes to you seven times in one day, not minor offenses here, but major stumbling offenses and he says forgive me i repent you're to look at him and you are say you're to say i forgive you i forgive you and the apostles have the response that i think i would have they they look to the lord and they say lord increase our faith increase our faith what do you mean you expect us to for, to forgive a person seven times in a day and the lord says if you had faith if you had any even just a little bit of faith what you don't understand is that you would be able to tell this tree to pick up and run itself into the ocean and plant in the ocean, and it would do it, and it would stay there. But because you don't have that faith, let me tell you a story. He tells him a story, a parable, about a slave. And a slave goes out and does his work in the garden. He does his work um, plowing, or he does his work tending the sheep, whatever it is, he, he fulfills his responsibilities, does the things the Lord has called him to do. And then when he's come in from the field, when he's come in, he's he's worked a hard day, he's been up at sunlight, he's worked till sundown, he's tired, he's dusty, he's hungry. It's not like he comes in and his master says, oh, you poor slave, you've worked so hard. Here, sit down, let me get you some dinner, let me get you something to drink. No, the master says, not really in an angry way, but just as a matter of fact of the relationship to a master to a slave, he says, get my dinner, please, and, uh, and, I, and I'd like something to drink, and And then when you're done all of that, make sure you clean yourself up so you don't stink up the dining room when you serve me. And then when I'm finished eating and when I'm done what I have intended to do, uh, you go feed yourself and take care of yourself. And then tomorrow, it'll be the same thing. And the next day, it'll be the same thing. And the next day, and the next day, and the next day. Jesus' point is very simple. The point of the parable is very simple. It's this. We need to do what we're asked to do and expect nothing in return. In the words of Jesus, we would say, just like an unworthy slave, I've done only that which I ought to have done. And the point to you and the point to me is that a man or a woman with a servant's heart is one who does what Jesus says and expects nothing in return. Do those words ring in your mouth? One who does what Jesus says and expects nothing in return, who follows the commands of the Lord and expects nothing back. It's important for you, and it's important for me. More, it's so important for me to understand that. Sometimes we think that we, we classify certain people, don't we? As having a servant's heart, we say, "Boy, that guy or, or that gal, they're just a real servant, you know, just a real servant. They do this and they do that, and we begin to think in our mind that if we if we function in this certain role as a servant." that somehow we earn a little something from Christ, or, or maybe we're just a little better Christian. Maybe we're just, uh, we put on that servant suit once in a while. We look for that opportunity, and we hear, we hear an opportunity in church, or in our Sunday school class, or in our dorm, and they say, boy, we need somebody to do this. And we think, yeah, I'll do it. I'll put on the servant clothes for a while. I'll wrap the apron around and go and serve. But the true servant understands that his service adds nothing to his standing before Christ. His work is expected. It's demanded. He works hard. He doesn't look for shortcuts. He doesn't whine about standards or too difficult workloads. He respects authority, the authority over him. He obeys it, and he humbly does what he's told to do. Sometimes, you and I, we believe that we can do exceedingly abundantly beyond whatever God could ask or think. Lord, look at this. Look what I did, God. I know you're going to like this one. You got something for me? We kind of stick our hand out there, expecting that by our deeds, somehow we're going to earn something from the Lord. Somehow we're going to strengthen our salvation that's already been strengthened completely by Christ. You may go to school, minister in a church, disciple somebody, evangelize your neighbors, pick up the trash in the dorm, wash somebody's car. You could do all these things and somehow think that you're going to earn from God, but it's not true not true at all. Beloved, we can never, ever, ever do beyond what God has called us to do. There's no glory in the servant's life. There's no glory in the servant's life. It's the responsible action of an obedient follower. So too, when you do all these things which are commanded, you say, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. It's no surprise, then, that there's a deep, deep relationship between a servant's heart, a person marked by a servant's heart, a true servant's heart, and the character trait of humility. You've probably heard it before, the test of a true servant is, how do you respond? What's your reaction, servant, when you're treated like one? How do you respond when maybe you're, really, you're going out there and you come to chapel early and, and you make sure that things are straightened? I don't know what the situation is. Maybe it's in your dorm. You, you're always careful to pick things up in, in the hallway and, and, and you're always careful to do this and to do that and to really serve. But, but how do you respond when you're treated like a servant? How do you respond when your RA comes to you and says, hey, would you clean up the hall and do a better job of it next time? What's the response of your heart? What's the response of my heart? What is this relationship between a servant's heart and humility? I think there's a very close relationship. Flip your Bible in your Bible to, um flip your Bible, but flip over to Matthew chapter 23. Our Lord is expounding in a diatribe against the seven woes, the seven woes against the Pharisees. An incredible passage of scripture. You might take an opportunity to make yourself a Pharisee, pretend you're a Pharisee, and read these words. Understand the kind of ministry that our Lord had. In chapter 23, verse 11, he says, But the greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself shall be humbled, and whoever humbles himself shall be exalted. We see from these verses that there's an obvious, very close, uh, and inextricably close binding in relationship between the concept of a servant's heart and the concept of true humility. Being a servant, we know, is possible to fake. You can do the work but be filled with pride. But if you're that kind of person, when you're treated like a servant, when you're serving and you're doing your thing and you're, you're sacrificing, and then someone comes along and they require a little bit more out of you, some person over you, and, and, and you're treated like a servant you're treated like a, save, a slave your response is going to be one of anger hostility maybe it's going to be that you stop serving you say the heck with this man forget this, I've been serving a long time here maybe you'll increase your service desiring even more to be noticed for what you do maybe you'll feel unappreciated unjustly treated unjustly rewarded for your hard work Your expectations have been violated. And down right at the bottom of everything is you saying, I am a victim. I'm not getting what I deserve here. I'm not getting what I deserve. Look at what I've done. Now give me something for it. And we realize that everything we've done has been to prove something, to promote ourselves, or to please men. And that's me. I think back over some of my time here at the college think of things that I've done whether it was a, as a student or as an employee and how maybe at some point making a, the decision to serve but then in the long haul having to serve and to serve and to serve and that subtle shift that takes place in our hearts where our expectations begin to grow and we're thinking boy when they find out how much I've served when they find out how much I've sacrificed I'm gonna they're probably gonna just I have a chapel about me. You know? They're just going to talk about me. Everybody's going to want to talk about me because look at how I've been a servant. I remember a Bible study that I was involved in around the same time as this incident with Dewey. And I went up to the guy and in my humble way approached the guy who was leading this study and I said, you know, uh, Brother... I would uh, really like to minister here in the study, and however I could serve, I would be very happy to do so. And he said, okay, we need somebody to get the overhead out of the garage every week. And I kind of looked at him and thought, well, (laughs) you don't understand, I'm a teacher. And he said, we need somebody to get the overhead out every week, out of the garage. And I was treated like a servant. And you know what I did as a 19, 20-year-old kid? I jettisoned, man. I was out the back door. I was running to another Bible study where there would probably be better opportunities for me to be recognized for the incredible leader and to be recognized for the incredible potential that I really had. You treat this man like a servant and he rips off the apron of the servant and he yells, I deserve better. Show me some respect. But the true servant is a humble servant. He says... The words of our Lord in Luke 17:10, I am just an unworthy slave. I've done only that which I have ought to have done. There's no guilt in that statement. There's no manipulation. Isn't, isn't it weird how we can take things that are true and good and we can turn them around? Because you know, you know, I know that we could sit there and in this crummy, festering sinfulness of our heart say those exact same words in a manipulative and in a, in a self-seeking way. But understand that God is not looking for some kind of external confirmation or conforming here. He's looking for a heart transformation and from a heart that says, in my very heart, I'm just doing what the Lord has called me to do. I'm an unworthy servant. I'm an unworthy servant. It's interesting to me that in the many instances of the disciples vying for position before Christ, you remember James and John and how they would come and say, say, Lord, Lord, let it be that one of us would sit on your left and one on your right. They even get their mom to come. What a bunch of pansies. Say, you know, what about, you know, what about my sons? It says so she bows down before him and says, put my sons, one on your right and one on your left. And, and I like what Jesus does. He looks right over top of her right into the two sons and says, you know, what's up with this? And other times, even, even, even at the Last Supper, and the disciples would bicker amongst themselves as they begin to consider who the traitor is, and the conversation slowly turns into who's going to be the greatest. It's interesting to me that in those situations jesus responds and says men like he says here in matthew 23 the greatest among you shall be your servant but his response is almost always in almost every occasion is to say follow my example the son of man did not come to be served but to serve to give his life as a ransom for many son of man our lord our general Our God did not come to be served, but to serve. Jesus' example is clear. We'd be remiss not to look at Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians 2, Paul sort of recounts the life of Christ. Let me read another substantial section of Scripture for you in verses 3 through 8. He writes, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, Hmm, interesting that word humble crops up, with humility of mind, let each of you regard one another as more important than himself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be hung on to, unrelentlessly clenched. But he purposely, in, in, in his own cognition, chose to empty himself, taking the form of a bondservant. God taking the form of a bondservant, a slave, and being made in the likeness of men. Verse 8, And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. And we see that one who has a servant's heart, who's going to follow Christ's examples, is one who lives for the benefit or the profit of other people. One who lives to benefit others. One who lives to promote others. One who lives to look out for the personal interests of other people, and not their own. One who dies to himself, gives his life away, and walks in true humility. One, I believe, who walks in personal brokenness. Brokenness. Dependence on God. You treat this one like a servant. You treat this one like a servant and he rejoices in his sufferings. You treat this one with honor, he doesn't sit back and say, yes, yes, it's true, I really am quite a servant, aren't I? No, he says, give God the glory. Give God the glory. Young people, that's not typical of our culture. That's not even close to our North American credo that says, I deserve blank. And then you fill in the blank. I deserve a car. I deserve a college education. I deserve a girlfriend. I deserve health care. I deserve no taxes. I deserve short lines. I deserve fast food. I deserve an instant pleasure motif. Alan Bloom, a secular author who died just last year, This guy is a pagan to the core, writes a book about you, about me, about our generation, and he says that this generation is caught up, excuse the term, in masturbational frenzy, looking only for their own good, looking only for their own pleasure, committed totally and solely to themselves and to their own instant and continuous self-pleasure. And it's in the middle of that that God calls out to you and He calls out to me and He says, live your life in purity, Live your life in holiness. Live your life in devotion to Me. And we say, Lord, increase our faith, which literally means if we translate it, Lord, you've got to be kidding. You've got to be kidding. You don't know what it's like to live here, Lord. You don't understand what it's like. There's too many stumbling blocks, Lord. There's too much opposition. Thrust into attention, because we know that the servant is the one who obeys Jesus and expects nothing in return. And that the true servant does that from a heart of humility, a heart that follows the example of Christ. But my question to you, my question to me, more than any of you, is how does that flesh out? What does it look like? What does it mean to be a servant today, in this culture, in North America, at Newhall, at the Masters College? the outworking of the servant's heart. I've considered my life, and I've considered the life of our campus, and there's one group on our campus who I am going to forcefully, I hope, not because I want to be something or not because I want to uh, yell, uh, but because of my concern for them, I want to address them specifically this morning, by name. A group who, at the very base, need to understand the foundational role of the servant's heart a segment of our campus who have, in many ways, failed the test. And as I speak to them, I put myself at the front of the line. Because I have been so weak here. One author has called these people the great American tragedy. Men, I speak to you. To you, men. And I urge you this morning to bear your chest to me, as it were, and allow the canon of God's truth to blast away, to blast away these misconceptions that we have of what it means to be a man. They're so far from true. Thinking that to serve, to take the role of a servant, is weakness. And ladies, it's a calculated risk on my part to speak to the men. This isn't the time for you to pull out your biology textbooks and sort of check out of a message, but rather it's the time for you to pay very close attention because we men, we can talk about things with one another, but it's a whole different story when we know that you know what God has called us to. In many ways, at the very essence of our maleness, the very essence of who we are as men is most clearly defined in our relationship with you as women. And I want you women, you ladies, to know what to look for, to not be deceived. As you're in relationship with men, you need to know what kind of man to love, what kind of man to give your heart to. I believe, men, that the man who possesses a servant heart, who lives his life in cheerful obedience to Christ, will be marked by six traits. And before I describe those, I want to give us a caution because I know that it's easier to describe the fruit of something than it is to describe the actual something. You can look across a field and see a bunch of trees, and you say, okay, well, that's an apple tree because I see the apples hanging on it. Much more difficult to walk up to that tree to analyze the molecular structure of its sap, to take a a hunk of bark and to take that back to some laboratory and match it with other hunks of bark, and, and then to cut the tree in half and to count the rings and to notice patterns a lot easier to describe a man who is a servant by describing his fruit than what it is that actually takes place in his soul that makes him a servant but in describing the fruit there's a danger that we begin to think of the fruit as the actual thing and in this case we think that if a person just has this fruit if they just do these things then they're truly a servant they're truly a man who has a servant's heart but if we do that we begin to focus our energy on external conformity, or external conformity rather than internal transformation. So I list off some characteristics here, characteristics that an ungodly, an unselfish man to some degree could build into his life. You understand that a man who could who could take those things and who could do them just for the sake of looking like something. But I believe that a man who pursues these things with integrity will be forced to humble his heart and to seek to be a true servant. And I list six. Maybe you would think of more. Maybe you think some of mine don't relate, but let me give them to you this morning. The man who is a true servant. The man who is a true servant. May best be described as, number one, a leader. A leader. And somehow we get, we get put into this, this, this paradox there. We think, how can a servant be a leader? What does it mean? It seems like a, a servant is one who follows. But God has called you, man. He has called me as a man to be a leader, not a passive follower, not a not a dictator, but a true servant leader. One who is proactive, who out of the pool of servanthood and humility is an initiator of change and direction. One who goes first. One who goes first who thinks for himself. Are you listening, man? One who labors and one who strives. He's unlike the man who sits unchallenged, disengaged, unresponsive. He doesn't wait for others to go first. He doesn't calculate all his actions based on the lowest risk factor. He acts, does not act from anger, but he acts from a quiet strength. In his church, he initiates ministry. He cares for people. He seeks ways to minister to others, to give his life up for others. With his family, he trains his children. He loves his wife. If if he's not married, he respects his parents. With his wife, with his girlfriend, he sets a pattern of initiation. Not making every single decision, but setting a pattern of initiation. Mobilizing the strengths of others. Pursuing his woman. Seeking to help her become more like Christ. He takes risks and he openly repents. He's always ready to lay down his own life. Men, are you ready to lay down your life? Listen to these words. Let me read something to you that strikes at the chord of what I think I'm trying to see. For male leadership is born out of pride and fallenness, when in fact pride is precisely what prevents spiritual leadership. The spiritual aimlessness, listen to this, the spiritual aimlessness and weakness and lethargy and loss of nerve among men is the major issue, not the upsurge of women An upsurge of interest in women's ministries. Pride, self-pity, fear, laziness, and confusion are luring many men into self-protecting, self-exalting cocoons of silence. Do you exist in a cocoon of silence, man? Or are you a man? Do you take a hold of your world because Christ has called you to it? Because He's called you to be the leader? Do you move out? Do you initiate do you go first? Do you lead? Where are the men with a moral vision for their families, a zeal for the house of the Lord, a magnificent commitment to the advancement of the kingdom, an articulate dream for the mission of the church, and a tender hearted tenacity to make it real? A second characteristic of a man with a servant's heart is that he will be a lover. He's a leader. He is a lover. He proactively cares for others. Not just the the people that are going to give him something back, but even the people that he doesn't like. He's growing in his agape. He has a concern for all the saints. He's involved in relationships for the only purpose of benefiting other people. You know, the great test of that for you is dating, man? Let me have your ears. Why do you date? I hate dating. I'm glad I'm done with dating. I didn't understand it. I didn't do that great at it, and I'm glad it's over. And some of you guys come into my office and you're confused, and and you, and, you're, and you don't know what to do. And I look at you and I go, I don't know what to do. It stinks, man. It stinks. And somehow you gotta live through that thing. But let me challenge you, and I, I certainly didn't live this way. I um I get really ticked off sometimes, guys. Because some of you guys enter into relationships with women. And you know how to do that, you know. You know how to win a woman's heart and to woo her to yourself. And and as a woman is built to respond, she begins to unravel her heart a little bit to you. And and maybe you're a leader there and and you're you're trying to do those things and, and then you you're taking her I, I sort of picture it like you're walking through the jungle, you know, and, and it's a nice jungle and the birds are chirping and the monkeys are flying and uh you know, and, and there you are, you're just sort of you're just winding your way through and you're kinda of, it's good, it's nice. And then all of a sudden you look back there and you go, you know what? I just don't feel anything anymore, and you're gone. Your history. And she turns around and, and there she is in the middle of this jungle. And then and then how dare you guys say chicks are emotional wrecks. Why doesn't she just get over it, dude? Why doesn't she just get over it? You stink and left her in the jungle. There's lions and tigers and bears, and she's gotta find her way back. Guys, if you're going to take the step of unraveling the heart of a woman, I'm sorry, there's going to be times you look at her and you think, you know, I just don't feel things anymore. If my wife were here, she would say, you know, there's times I look at my husband and I just don't feel a whole lot. There's other times, man, when we're just in love. But love is not based on feeling. How many times do we have to hear that? Love is based on a relational commitment to give of myself to another person. And men, as you move into relationship with women, you're to be lovers. All women. Not just the ones that are going to tickle your feathers. Not just the ones that are going to be something to stick in your cap. Not just the ones that are victory. You can put your arm around her and strut around like a peacock, thinking you're something. Sorry, I got a little angry. C.S. <laughs> Lewis... He wrote this and it baffled me the first time I read it. He said, you know, it's the husband who has the most stubborn and ugly wife and who loves her, who understands what true Christian love is. Because that's the love that Christ has for the church. The stubborn and many times ugly church. And then you have got to learn that love is not based on feeling. Love is based on a commitment. And feelings may come and feelings may go. But to be a servant is to be a lover. Who do you love, man, and why? Why do you love him? A third characteristic is a man who is a servant. A man who is marked by a servant's heart will be a planner. A planner is a leader, a lover, and A planner. You can say, for this I exist. He has a purposeful plan for the future. And I'm not saying that you've got to have everything laid out and you're so hyper-scheduled and hyper-whatever that you can say, you know, on this date of this day, I'm going to have this done and I'll be married on this time and I don't even know who she is yet. um, You know, you've got that kind of thing laid out. But you know where you're going. Guys, I look at some of you, I think about times in my life where we have just been aimless. We're just kind of there. We're big, huge, fat, ugly couch potatoes. Flipping the channels. God is looking for men who can answer the question of this is why I'm on the planet. It's Philippians 3 stuff. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Men who live like Paul. Do you live like Paul men? Do you live like Paul men? do I do I have a plan for the future? Am I going somewhere? Do I know why I'm on the planet? Does what I do every day count? A fourth characteristic. He's a protector. A protector of women. Gentlemen, I get concerned when I see how sometimes we relate to women in our midst. I, I can't go into it, but I, I really believe all this women's lib stuff, if you're a Russia Limbaugh fan, all the Feminazi stuff, uh, has done more to damage the respect for women in the last 20 years uh, than anything that has ever touched our country as men ladies you need to understand that we are taught over and over again by things we see by things we hear by the way certain women act we're taught to treat you like men and and some of you may be liking that but if i if i was you i'd be hating that i'd be hating that because you're not men you're women and men and women are different I hope that doesn't shock you. In Genesis chapter 12, there's a story about Abraham and Sarah that gets me frustrated every time I read it because it convicts me so much. I don't have time to read the whole story, but essentially what happens is this. And what's interesting is that it happens again after this in Genesis chapter 20. And Abraham goes into a foreign land. And when he's in this land, he looks around and he says, gee, everybody here is bigger than me. And then he looks at his wife and he says, my wife is a knockout. And the fact is, when these great rulers see my great-looking wife, they're going to want to knock me off so they can get my wife. And so in the pansiness and in the wimpiness and in the feminists of whatever, (laughs) I ran out of words, that... (laughs) He just goes and he looks at Sarah and he says, "Um, tell them you're my sister, okay? (laughs) And sure enough, they come looking around and they go, whoa baby, look at her, who is she? And he says, that's my sister, (laughs) that's my sister. And they take her away. Here is the man's wife taken away to a foreign king, to Pharaoh one time, to Abimelech another time. Who's going, to be, who's going to be adulterated, who's going to be taken as another man's wife. Not only violating the whole promise that God had said that the promised seed would come through that woman, but the very fact that he was more concerned about his own soul than he was about that of his wife. And brothers, we can do this. We can do it today. And Maybe it's not by giving our wives away to foreign kings. Luckily, I've never done that one. But there's a lot of different ways we can do it. But a servant will be willing to look foolish, to suffer pain for the sake of women. For the sake of women. Maybe you're at a basketball game. And I don't know, there's a million situations, but let me try and paint the picture of what I mean. Maybe you're sitting over there in the stands and there's somebody from the opposite team who's just downright pagan. It's Biola. And they... It was a gimme. And, uh, and, that, and they're just yelling and they, and they start yelling at some girls. Be a protector, man. You walk over there, not not some big hotshot guy, but you just say, you know what? These are the women of our campus, and I really don't respect the way you're treating them, and I'd appreciate it if you stop. You know, and then if they push you around, take them outside and show them something. <laughs> That's one way we can protect women. But there's, uh, there's 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 other ways, men, that are a lot harder than that. It's kind of easy, you know, to, to walk into those situations. It happened this, we were, my wife and I were in Palm Springs about a week ago, and we're walking by this guy, it was like a group of guys, and they, they and it's rude, but they checked out my wife. They like, we walked past them, and they stop, and I, and I noticed they stop, and they're all standing there like pointing at my wife. And I turned around, and I said, Hi, how you doing? Check out my wife.
1: <laughs>
0: What's up with that? Then I walked away. The best part is I walk away and then I start going.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> Scared to death. There's other ways for a man to be a protector. Man, we need to speak correctly around women. We need to treat them as princesses. And I'm sorry you don't like that. that, but the fact is true. Open the doors. Take them to movies that don't embarrass them. Be thoughtful. Be courteous. Be men. Be servants. And I know, man, I know that it's a lot easier to act like you're with the guys when you're with the gals. Because when you're with the guys, man, you cut loose and you're being a guy and you burp and you, you know... (laughs) Like, forget that stuff. Be a man. Be a servant. Serve the women of our campus by being respectful by being lovers, by being leaders, by being protectors. We need to jam. He's a soul discloser, number five. He's determined to engage the whole of his self into the reality of current life. Determined to engage the whole of his self into the reality of current life. He's willing to give his life away. He can answer the question that Paul asked the Corinthians in Second Corinthians chapter 6-7 and 7 when he says, Open wide your hearts to us, O Corinthians. We've opened wide our hearts to you. A man who is a servant is willing to take down the barriers and to say, this is who I am. Take it or leave it. It's who I am. In humility and humbleness. Living with the open invitation to soul invasion. It's the stuff that Ecclesiastes 11, 9, and 10. The carpe diem, joyful self-disclosure for the benefit of others. We need to do that not just with women men, but with men as well. Opening our heart to them. Sixthly and finally, a man who is a servant is a God-pleaser. Not a man-pleaser. He performs for an audience of one. And like Joseph, who was in the situation with this woman who was enticing him, and men, let me speak again to you. Picture it with me, men. There you are. You're working hard. You're doing your thing. And you've got a woman who's coming after you sexually, who wants to have intercourse with you, okay? You've got some job off campus, maybe, where you work, you clean homes. I don't know what it is. And this woman is coming after you. She wants you. What are you going to do? Suddenly there's the situation, you're at home alone, you look and then there she is, and she starts actually physically grabbing at your clothes. Men, do you run away? Some of you, probably all of us at one time in our lives, maybe several times, have thought, man, that's everything I want. That's everything I want. I want a woman to come after me. Men, Joseph fled Potiphar's wife not because she was ugly, but because sin was ugly. He understood what it was to perform for an audience of one. And that audience, obviously, is God. A leader, a lover, a planner, a protector, a soul-discloser, a God-pleaser. Obviously, this equals self-abandonment. It's the hard path, man. It's the very hard path. And I'm terrified to stand up here and preach it to you. <clears throat> everything in me is, is saying, sit down, shut up, and don't say any more. Because anything I say, I am now accountable. I'm strictly accountable. But a man who pursues this path will understand that at the base of everything is the relentless pursuit of God. Relentless pursuit of relationship with Him. You'll understand that it's the late nights and the early mornings pouring out our soul before God, seeking our Savior. Oh, that we might know Him and oh, that He might funnel His power through us. That's the heartbeat of the man of the servant's heart. Who will follow Christ and be a servant? Men, who will follow? Is it you? Be that man. Who will abandon the superfluous pursuit of political correctness and self-image and serve the Savior? Who will say, like Christ, we are unworthy slaves. We have done only that which we ought to have done. Make it a day of decision, men. Rise up, O men of God. Have done with lesser things. Give heart and soul and mind and strength to serve the King of Kings. Let's pray. Our Lord and our Father, so easy for us, Father, to come to your word and to again consider the truths of it. So much more difficult, Father, to work at appropriating these truths into our own hearts. So we pray for your grace. I more than any God. That you would change us because of what we've learned. I ask it in your son's name. Amen. You're dismissed.